0: In this week's Grizzle podcast, we spoke with Aurora Davidson, the CEO of Amerigo Resources, to get her outlook on the lumen copper deficit and what the copper market will look like as the energy transition unfolds. Today's Spaces is sponsored by the Grizzle Research and Quant Substack and Amerigo Resources. And as stated in the title, we're going to be discussing the copper deficit and what the market will look like going forward as this energy transition unfolds. And I, I know prices have recently pulled back on weaker demand out of China, but today as Scott said, is we're going to be focusing on the long-term story here. And I I pinned something up in the nest. I don't know if any of you guys were at PDAC, but I remember mining tycoon Robert Freeland said that we'll need more copper in the next 22 years than we've ever mined in history. So who knows if that's true, but I think we are starting to see a material shift in the market, you know, with everything going on in the news. You've had a huge amount of M&A activity going on in the space with Glencore's move to acquire tech resources for its copper assets and Newmont Corp bidding for Newcrest Mining for its copper assets. So clearly there's a lot of appetite in the market right now. Um, And that's why we have Aurora here to, to discuss everything. So our special guest is the CEO of Amerigo Resources, which if you're not familiar, they're a unique play on copper. They produce copper from waste material from one of the world's largest underground copper mines in Chile. So thank you so
1: much. Nice to be here.
0: And so just starting off, before we get into your assets and, and your outlook on, on Copper um, as a whole, you know, you have over 30 years of international experience in financial markets and, and business management. Can you just walk us through maybe your, your, the history of your career
1: and, and what drew you to Amerigo? Sure. That's uh, an unusual question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. So I always had an interest in how businesses run because my father uh, was CEO of a mining company in Mexico. I'm from Mexico. And we used to spend our holidays, most of our holidays when I was growing up in the mining town where the operation was located. And so I I think that I've always had a familiarity and an interest in businesses. So for me, getting my my university degree in business administration was was very logical. And uh, my initial working years, I spent in Mexico. I worked for multinational firms uh, in animal health and water treatment. Uh, And then when I came to Canada, I obtained my accounting designation and I worked in financial positions in high tech companies. And once I had my designation under the belt, I I started my own company, um, working as an outsourced uh, CFO for public companies. And one of my first clients, uh, so to speak, was Amerigo. This was 2003, and Amerigo had just completed the acquisition of MVC, which is our operating asset in Chile. And I have been with Amerigo since, um, first as CFO, then as CFO and executive VP, and for the last three years as CEO.
0: That's and that's why we ask because you have such a unique story and it's really interesting. Especially, um, you know, we, we don't see a lot of female CEOs, so it's really nice to to get your perspective and just your success in the industry as a whole. Um, and and you know, you've been with Amerigo for for decades now, and so I want to ask you, you know, you guys have a very unique business model. You're a copper producer, but not a conventional conventional miner. Can you maybe walk our viewers through Amerigo's business model
1: and what makes you guys unique? Sure, sure. Um, well, Amerigo produces copper. That's why we're here in this call. But we produce it from the waste material of the world's uh, largest underground copper mine, which is Codelco's El Teniente Mine. Uh, and for people that are uh, not within the mining uh, space, uh, the waste material from mines uh, is called tailings. So our operation processes uh, these tailings and recovers additional copper. And the question is, well, how much copper? Last year, we produced uh, 64 million pounds of copper, which is what a mid-sized copper mine produces annually. So we're the equivalent of a mid-sized copper mine. Uh, We then get to sell this copper that we produce at market prices, so there is no differentiation between our product and the product comes out of a traditional mine. And we pay a royalty to the mine from which we get the tailings. Uh, This situation is really a win-win situation because additional copper uh, is recovered. And it is produced in a 100% secondary process. Uh, there is not a single other operation in the world that is producing copper at the levels that we're producing fully from a secondary process. So we're, we're the only ones doing it. Um, actually, we, we, we may be the only copper producer in the world that has uh, no geologists on its payroll. We, we don't produce additional waste uh, in doing our process uh, we have no need to explore for future reserves uh, we have no high capital requirements and margo th- this is what puts us in a unique position because the cash flow that is generated from our operations can be returned uh, to our shareholders
0: yeah clearly a lot of benefits there over a conventional miner um, and, and i want to get into your assets specifically um, in a bit but Right now, I, I want to ask you a question We're on the macro. We seem to be getting these concerns of, of China going into a recession, um, re-entering the market. How important is China right now to the macro story for copper? Is, is this something you're watching
1: closely? It's a good question. Um, and uh, I'm going to try to answer it as best I can. China is the world's leading consumer of refined copper. Uh, so as you say, uh, any headline changes... Uh, in actual or in forecasted consumption trends in China have an impact on the spot copper prices. And that's exactly what we're seeing today, okay? However, I think that we have to go beyond the headlines factor, uh, generally in most topics, but particularly uh, when when thinking about copper and understanding the macro story for copper. And let me give you an example. There was a headline uh, last week that literally said, Copper inventories in the LME have surged to their highest level since March 20th. And if you don't understand what this means, uh, you may think, well, you know, uh, inventories are going up, copper prices going down. What, what, the, what, what the hell is going on? But let me just um, give an example there. First of all, copper inventories are at historical lows. Um, so I have picked up an arbitrary date, May the 10th. So last May 10th, two days ago, copper inventories at the LME were 75,000 tons. If I pick up the same date, a year ago, the inventories were 168,000 tons. And the same day, five years ago, 285,000 tons. So even if there was a headline that sounds very dramatic, the reality is that inventories today are at 45% of what they were a year ago and 26% of what they were five years ago. So that's why looking at the macro is so important in understanding the business here. In one of our uh, recent earnings call at Amerigo, I I basically uh, used uh, the quote uh, that Freeport had used in their their call a few days earlier. And I'm just going to repeat it here verbatim. The quote says, Trying to predict short-term copper prices is very difficult. We actually don't even try to do it ourselves. We deal with short-term negative movements when they occur. And that's what copper producers should be ready for. There's going to be volatility. There's going to be noise. There's going to be uh, reaction and and price pull. But at the end of the day, uh, the macros are very solid. And as copper producers, what we have to ensure is that we have – the balance sheet that allows us to navigate through these little dips uh, without any issues. And going back to your initial question of China, I kind of diverted there into the headline factor, but going back into your initial question about China, what's really interesting here is that even if China has been uh, the predominant force in demand uh, for a decade or more than that now, um, what we're looking at here with the energy transition is that Developed regions, uh, North America, Europe, are starting to become increasing consumers of copper again. And this is a reversal of decades uh, of, of uh, demand dynamics where China was leading the way. And we, we're actually seeing that other regions are starting to, uh, to require more, copy, more copper. And uh, an in- interesting metric here is uh, copper intensity. Uh, to GDP. Those metrics are going to be changing uh, dramatically in the next years for the developed world.
0: Absolutely. And I, and I think what you said there with copper inventories being at historical lows, I mean, we've been in this recession narrative for about a year now and copper prices have held up really well. So I just feel like this this energy transition theme and all that stuff, like copper isn't necessarily directly related as an asset to a recession, like that Dr. Copper theme that it was always talked about. It seems like there's there's another macro story impacting prices or 're providing price stability right now, which is those inventory levels? Um, and and I wanted to move on and ask you about the appetite in copper that's growing, which which is what you spoke about previously. Um, we're seeing a lot of new investment um uh, in m and a in the sector. Glencore's move to acquire tech resources, Newmont Corp bidding for Newcrest Mining, BHP completing its acquisition of copper producer Oz Minerals. What do you make of this? Like, does this tell us there's there's a supply issue at stake? Um, these major players are, are hungry to get exposure to this metal. What, what do you make of, of the news recently? <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, th- there is absolutely no question in my mind that there are big supply challenges uh, when we're talking about copper. Um, as you know, Chile uh, is the world's most important copper producer, and Chile provides 28% of global copper mine production, okay? So let's see what has happened in Chile when, uh, when, when we're talking about supply. In 2022, Chile's copper production was 7% lower than in 2021, 10% lower than in 2020, and 11% lower than its highest ever production year, which was 2018. So this is huge. We're talking about declining production year on year from the world's biggest, most significant copper producer and the country that has the most reserves. Now, if we go back to your question, Companies can either grow organically or by acquisition, right? And without any question, it's faster to grow through an M&A, particularly when you're talking about mining. Organic growth in mining is very challenging. It's very capital intensive. It's very time consuming. For more than a decade, what has happened is that producers have reduced or uh, had to reduce their exploration budgets in order to preserve cash. So uh, we we, we know that we are in a period, in a dry period of new discoveries, right? And at the same time, the industry has faced tremendous challenges, growing challenges in terms of permitting, uh, social licensing, community involvement, community consultations. So all of this is adding precious and expensive time to move to, the, the, the spot where everybody wants to move, which is from discovery into production, the time spanning between discovery and production has increased consistently, and that leaves uh, uh, M&A as as the only avenue available for growth. Um, if if and, and also when talking about growth, you originally were looking at um, you know adding to your pay to your base, right? Adding production. What is happening now is that as production levels decline at most mining companies because you're facing uh, a depleted mineral resource, you have lower grades, etc., then growth is not not to grow. It's just to maintain the positions that you already had. So, yeah, there are currently supply challenges. The pipeline of new projects, um, new supply, in fact, is very thin. And there are also other incentives at stake um, that are conducive to M&A. Uh, you know, cost efficiencies, economies of scale, uh, elimination of redundant uh, corporate DNA, uh, implementing KPIs across operations. So there, there are a lot of drivers uh, that are boosting consolidation in the sector. Margot, absolutely. Scott, go ahead,
0: please.
2: I also just had a question, Aurora, on costs. I've seen, you know, somewhat of a significant cost increase, mining costs uh, across the industry. And I'm wondering, is that kind of, uh, is that a lasting legacy of, of COVID? Or is that kind of a, a short term because we're seeing inflation across the globe because of, of COVID-19? Or do you think that this is kind of like a, a one-time thing? Or is is there a trend going well, on? Oh, no,
1: there is a trend and a new a new floor has been established, a higher floor. Uh, Inflation has hit everything. Uh, When you're thinking about copper, um, uh, you know, uh, steel is one of the big uh, uh, things that is using copper. We don't use a lot of diesel, but diesel is also, uh, you know, a a considerable um, input uh, for most mining operations, reagents. All of those um, um, inputs are quite specific. Um, they were facing supply challenges through COVID, but I think that new floors have been established. And this is, uh, this is an adjusted inflation uh, cost scenario across the industry that you're looking at.
2: Now, do you see room for companies to bring those costs down as these uh, supply chain issues go away? Or it's more a floor and then you see slower increases from here? I
1: think it's a floor and you'll see you will not be seeing the same uh, significant increments in in costs that we saw through the second part of 2021, all of 2022. By the way, we didn't have the same impact in our operation, uh, just a little ad and a little commercial there uh, as as was seen in, in most of the uh, the mining world, just because we have other um, input uh, matrices. Uh, we don't require a lot of reagents, for example. We use very little diesel as, as, I, as I said, but I think that uh, the, the, a new floor has been established and it's not going to grow up as dramatically, but it, we're not going to, to go back to 2021 cost uh, cost levels. There's there's that's not going to happen.
2: And for anyone who doesn't know how commodity markets work, that's actually somewhat bullish for the price because if you need more supply and these miners have higher costs, you have to incentivize new drilling with higher prices. So as as costs go up, it kind of raises the whole cost structure of the industry. Isn't that the right way to think about it? It is.
1: You go you go one one floor up. Um, Aurora, I just wanted to
0: ask you um, a-, a question on this uh, because you are located in Chile. You know, Chile recently uh, made plans to nationalize their lithium industry. What are your views on that? And, and do you think there's a possibility that they could um, start to nationalize their copper industry? I know Amerigo recovers uh, copper from Cadelco, which is already state owned. But I just want to get your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Let me reorganize it uh, to start with the most relevant comment for me, which is copper. Uh, you, you were asking if I think Chile uh, will nationalize its copper industry. The answer is that that has already happened. Um, so I'll, I'll give you a little uh, bit of a, of a history run here. Um, in 1967, there was a process in Chile, uh, which is known as the Chileanization of copper. And at that point in time, uh, Chile acquired a percentage of the shares of the then three major copper producers that had operations in Chile. Uh, This was uh, essentially a negotiated nationalization of the major copper mines. Um, In the case of El Teniente, which is the mine from which we get our tailings, uh, the state of Chile ended up having 51% ownership uh, in that mine through this process. Um, And... Chile then set a special tax regime for a period of 20 years uh, to continue with this process. But in in 1970, a few years later, Chile uh, went a step further and nationalized, fully nationalized these major copper companies, which became the property of the state and which were eventually uh, incorporated as CODELCO, which is uh, Chile's uh, national copper producer. Uh, uh, By the way, the biggest Copper producer in the world. So after that process, so essentially yes, Chile has already nationalized its major copper operations. Um, uh, um, Chile continued with a path where they kept those operations as their own, and currently Chile has a, a dual regime where basically seventy-two percent of the copper mines are owned by private companies, and twenty-eight percent are the Codelco mines. So this system has served Chile very well for more than 50 years now. And under it, Chile has become, as I mentioned in one of the questions before, the top copper producer in the world. So I don't think there is an appetite to change this because it has worked well for the country. Now, going back to your question about lithium. I can only comment, really, what I have read about the subject uh, in in the in the industry press. I'm not an expert in the lithium field, but more than saying that Chile has nationalized lithium, I think that what has happened was uh, what what happened was a rollout of a national strategy of how to develop lithium on a going-forward basis, which Chile hadn't had. Uh, There are two big projects in Chile that are lithium projects. Those are not being uh, touched. Uh, They have long-term licenses. I think they go uh, 2030, one of them, 2043, the other one. So those are not being changed. Nothing has changed with the two uh, um, already known uh, lithium uh, developers and producers in Chile. And so, so, so the rest of the strategy is essentially how are we going to be doing further uh, development of the lithium industry in, in the country? And to that effect, Chile has uh, declared that they want to be uh, partners uh, with, with private firms. So dual partnerships of uh, the private industry and the Chilean state. On a going forward basis. But I think that more clarity and more specifics are still needed on how they're going to be rolling out that strategy.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, I I, uh, I didn't know that that history of of Chile and the government, um, you know, working together to nationalize their their industry. So I, I know we're seeing more of that right now, just with you know governments getting involved. Um, legislation right now is very skewed towards critical minerals and you know the development of EVs. I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, wh- what do you expect? Um, you know, like with this global shift to EVs um, expected to increase demand for critical critical minerals, where do you see demand for copper heading in the long term? I know we kind of talked about the supply in, in the beginning, but where do you see demand heading um, in, in the long term?
1: Wow. Uh, <laughs> depends on, on who you want to read uh, is the impact of how much demand is expected to grow. But you're not going to see anyone uh, claiming that we're going to be uh, continuing with demand growth from traditional copper uh, sources as we've seen it before. There's definitely going to be a, a huge additional energy transition demand. Uh, this is real. Uh, it goes beyond electric vehicles. Um, in fact, if you look at um, the aggregate uh, projected copper demand for battery storage and offshore wind, is expected to be uh, more than three times higher. Than the additional demand that is being brought in by EV. So you've got uh, battery storage, offshore wind, electric vehicles, uh, solar, onshore wind, electrical transmission, electrical distribution. Uh, it, it's 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 mind boggling. It's it's it really really is mind boggling. And on the other hand, supply will continue to be stressed uh, by the complexity of, of mining and permitting and how long it takes to build an uh, a, a copper mine, etc. So when you put the two market forces together, Marco, I think that uh, we're going to be having a chronic and substantial gap between supply and demand, and this, of course, will be supportive of copper prices. Um, how much? Uh, depending again on the studies uh, that you want to want to check, some say that uh, you know the, the annual supply demand could be anywhere from. 4.7 to 10 million tons of copper by 2030. Um, but a 10 million ton supply gap, um, just to put it again in context, is 50% of our current global copper production. So, you know, filling a gap of 50% of what already is being produced is monumental. It is, it is absolutely, uh, uh, it's a paradigm shift uh, in the copper market.
0: And I, I just want to move on to maybe um, discussing copper and how it compares to other critical minerals. Like, how do you how do you view the supply deficit for copper versus other metals like lithium going forward?
1: Look, I'm not an expert on other on other uh, critical minerals. Uh, what's interesting for me is what's happening with copper, for example, in the definition of whether copper is actually a critical mineral or not. In, in Canada, it is. In the U.S., it's not yet. Um, so I, I think this is this is wrong, and I think that copper definitely should be considered a critical mineral. Um, why? Uh, there there are several characteristics, right, that define uh, a critical material. Uh, first, it has to be essential uh, to the economy and to national security. Uh, there is no question that copper is essential uh, to to the economy. As it st- as it stood before the energy transition, even more so with the energy transition uh, with the energy transition demand on top of that, it plays a key role in technology, in defense, in consumer electronics, uh, you know, even basic basic construction applications, and it is very subject to uh, supply ch- uh, supply chain disruptions, uh, and 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 we're seeing that, uh, you know, look at what's happened with. Uh, uh, with uh, Freeport in Indonesia in the first quarter of this year, a major flooding, a major disruptions to copper supply, social unrest in Peru, major disruptions to copper supply. So if you look at all of these key elements, uh, you can see that copper is, in fact, uh, a critical mineral, should be recognized and such. And uh, uh, that in and by itself uh, will be an important recognition of, of the importance of copper on a going forward basis.
0: Thank you. And, and, and Thomas and Scott, feel, feel free to chime in if you, if you have any questions. But I, I know we talked about the macro here and you provided some great insights on, on just kind of the, the macro factors impacting copper as a whole. But I want to kind of move on specifically to the story of Amerigo. You guys obviously recovering copper from waste material. What would you say is the, the, the benefits of you know owning Amerigo over a miner?
1: Um, or the differences? yeah, i'm I'm, I'm gonna give you a one liner so that people can remember that very very easily. Um, our investment thesis is that America provides exposure to rising copper prices without the risks or exposures of traditional mining.
0: And I know you guys were talking about you know how how you guys don't have the same costs and all that stuff. Could you maybe talk about like how you work with Cadelco specifically for for those that don't know?
1: Well, it's, it's a very easy um, uh, explanation. Um, we get uh, all of the waste material from their uh, day-to-day production. That's called fresh tailings. Uh, it's very interesting how we get it. We get it by gravity. Uh, uh, the mine is located um, um, upstream from us uh, in, in the Andes Mountains. So there is a, a concrete channel that transports these tailings uh, in the form of a slurry, a wet slurry. We get it at MVC, we process it at MVC through a traditional concentrator, and then we return it also by gravity to the final uh, uh, tailings deposit of, uh, of El Tiniente. Uh, so uh, we're you, you could consider us to be a, um, um, a, a sort of a loop in the operation between the mine and the tailings deposit. We're located there, we get all the all the tailings and we return the tailings uh, without that uh, 64 million uh, contents of copper, which is then, um, you know, marketed as, as regular copper. We pay a royalty to El to do that. Um, we have a, uh, um, a very strategic relationship with them because we're also repositioning some of their old tailings um, that are deposited adjacent to our plant. So that's the second feed of material that we have. Uh, We we, um, increase the water content of those dry tailings uh, so that we can create a slurry, transport it by piping to our plant and recover that copper. So there are two feeds of material, the the day-to-day tailings that are coming with the current grade uh, of copper, and then the historical tailings, which have a higher copper content, because as you can imagine, uh, back in the day, operations were not as efficient. We're talking about tailings that were deposited um, 60, 70 years ago.
2: Aurora, I was hoping I could ask you a question about growth, because we're talking about the inability of the industry kind of to grow to meet demand globally. I'm curious what your uh, growth could look like. Are you is your growth very intertwined with Cadelco like as their as their production grows then your ability to grow if you chose to would would be there or is there an option that you could grow on your own if you wanted to just process more of their tailings
1: no um, uh, there, there's a constraining factor uh, which is how much uh, the capacity of transporting the tailings outside of the MBC facility, into the channel, uh, which is owned and operated by Codelco. By, well, there's no operation, it's all by gravity, but it's their channel. They own that infrastructure. Uh, As the Delco's uh, fresh tailings material and production grows, we need to process less of the old tailings material at the same time in order to keep our our production level. So there's an extension of, or there's a a shift in the composition of the feed. Um, And we've we've seen that. Uh, We used to be producing most of our copper from the old tailings, and we have shifted that in the last three years in order to get um, a full recovery of the fresh tailings. And we only add on the historical tailings to top up our production. So, There's a constraint factor into how much we can produce, but there are ways of extending uh, the usability or or the uh, uh, availability of that resource, which are the historical tailings, uh, further into the the future. We're not depleting that as, as fast as we were if we weren't able to utilize all of the fresh tailings. Uh, The real driver of growth uh, in our operation at MVC is essentially copper price. Uh, There are two factors to revenue, uh, production and copper price. And as copper prices rise, uh, and and we are are adamant they will rise, so will the, the revenue metric for ourselves.
2: I mean, as we at Grizzles, we've been digging more in your story. What I like is that you don't need prices to rise because you've optimized your company to such a degree that you have uh, yield. I think Margo uh, wants to talk to you about your your yield, which is kind of like best in class in, in the copper industry. But you don't need growth for investors to see a solid return. But then, as you said, you guys have that upside to the copper price like any any mine, uh, which I, I like that you get
1: both. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, so maybe, yeah, let's talk about that. I know you guys have about um, a 7.5% dividend yield. How does that maybe compare to your competitors? I know Scott maybe touched on that right now. And and how are you able to sustain this?
1: Um, Our dividend has been set up at a rate uh, where we can keep it sustainable over time, including the dips in copper price, which will always occur, right? We, We know that that is part of the... Of, of the cycle of the copper cycle uh, uh, pricing reality. So we have now paid seven consecutive quarters of dividends since uh, we rolled out our return of capital policy about two years ago. And we have only raised the base dividend uh, once uh, to where we now are. We will, we will be staying at this rate until we know that other sustained increase can occur. We are in no hurry to offer a higher dividend, and then you know, find out we need to adjust it downwards. That's not going to happen. When cash starts to build up, uh, we have other mechanisms in our uh, return of capital policy to distribute that cash opportunistically. We have share buybacks, and we have a performance dividend that will be tied up to copper price. Our dividend rate is quite unique. You mentioned 7.5%. Um, just to give you examples of other um, copper uh, uh, companies with, with, uh, with dividends, Freeport has a yield of less than 1%. and Tofagasta is paying around 3.5%, um, and America is paying 7.5%.
2: - I actually I, I uh, used the power of Bloomberg and looked yesterday across your industry, and I saw you guys were, I think you're the highest uh, yielding company. And usually coming from commodities, that's usually a red flag because there's some issue with the balance sheet. But then I looked and you guys have more cash than debt. So I think there's this unique situation to own companies. I've seen it in oil and gas and then also in copper where you can get a high yield, but you're not sacrificing company quality, which I haven't really seen that in 20 years. So I think it's a great time to be a commodity investor, really.
1: I agree with you.
0: I know we only have uh, ten more minutes, I believe, left with you. But was there anything we didn't ask you that you want to touch on, or maybe uh, milestones Amerigo's looking forward to in the years ahead? Or oh, I see Thomas has a question.
3: Uh, uh, go ahead, Aurora. And I, I can ask after.
1: Oh no, no, go ahead, and I'll I'll make a closing commentary. <laughs> yeah, no. no well, do, do you know
3: what I I probably wanted to ask it a bit earlier with respect to. Um, you know, you you mentioned all the challenges at mines uh, operationally, and you know, uh, you know, being one of uh, one of the many reasons that, that, that copper supply has has been challenged. I just wanted to get your your take in, uh, with respect to ESG and and obviously how that how that has. Uh, elongated uh the time it takes to get a new mine on like surely like bringing a mine on 30 years ago it it was was easier than it is today but the part that i'm having a tough time quantifying is just how much you know how much harder is it today from a timeline perspective because the biggest issue we're facing right now is we have it's clear the demand side is there it's just understanding how you know this supply wedge can uh, can fit in but but to understand that properly to understand you know some of the the hurdles that, that are here today that weren't there you know in the past
1: yeah that's a, that's a great question um there is a big disconnect between the the, the permitting world uh, versus versus the demand challenges uh, uh, that, that, that are going to be coming in uh, and and how the whole industry uh, is being uh, basically held uh, held backwards by 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 uh, a permitting framework that hasn't acknowledged yet how critical it is to be swifter. You don't need to do a bad job uh, in permitting uh, and you know take away the progress that has been established uh, rightfully so uh, to ensure that operations meet uh, environmental standards. But it's not a trade-off. I think that it has just become very, very inefficient. It has become very bureaucratic. Um, uh, there, there are a lot of, uh, you know, wasted times and wasted days when you're looking at, at permitting. Um, when we were permitting our uh, copper expansion at NBC. Um, uh, years ago uh, you know it was not as bad as it is now where everything has to go to a double triple uh, consultation Uh, there's there are disconnects between the different government agencies in terms of who's looking at what and which permit or which sign-off comes in first Uh, they really have to go back to the drawing board and reassess Yes, we're going to keep up with the standards. We're not going to go backwards. We, we need to ensure that the projects are, are, are envi- environmentally sound, uh, that communities have a, a buy-in and a say and are protected. But this has to be done in a much more efficient way than it has. Uh, they're, they're, we are just wasting tremendous amount of time on, on the permitting side of things. Uh, that is just um, un- unacceptable under, under the challenges that we're facing. As an industry.
3: Well said. That's uh, that's a it's a great way to put it. You know, I think that that discourse of what you've just said there is uh, we're missing that we're missing you know the that conversation uh specifically like understanding the inefficient clearly we wanted you know environmental um environmental and, and uh environmental and, and uh um uh, you know uh you, you know human rights etc like obviously should be uh respected but but are we doing it in the most efficient manner and that's been the challenge
1: yeah, it is it is a tremendous challenge. It used to be it used to be financing, right? I mean, what was the major hurdle that companies had to go through? Uh financing and then construction. And those in and by themselves were tremendously challenging for, for the for the mining industry. You're talking about uh, significant uh, capex on one hand that has to be raised and then um ensure that, that you can deploy it on time and budget. But now you've factored in an, an additional layer that has added considerably to the, to the inefficiencies. Right. And, 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 and if you look at the cycle, uh, you basically have to have your permits uh, in order to secure your, 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 your financing. Uh, and, and it could take years uh, to do one. So it, it just becomes a, a juggling act that, that, that has added tremendous costs and tremendous uh, um It has been a huge opportunity cost uh, really for the world, not, not, not just for the mining industry.
0: Thank you so much. Um, I, I know we're getting to the the, the close here because uh, Aurora has to jump off at twelve forty five. But thank you so much for for joining us and just talking about you know the industry. It's it's clearly one of the the, the top commodities in in the news sector right now, just given all the the stuff with M and A inventories being at historic lows, the energy transition. So really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through um, your unique business model and just the, the macro story for copper. Thank you.
3: And Aurora, I'll just add one point. I know, I know. When, before my question, I know you, you. I think you had a comment to wrap up, so I didn't. I don't, don't, don't want to. Um, feel free to, you know, any wrapping, uh, wrapping points. I know my question kind of jumped in there. Yeah.
1: No, I just wanted to point out to our own ESG credentials. Uh, you know, we're proud of our operation. We're proud of our uh, the fact that we're. Uh, doing what we say that we're going to be doing production-wise. Our costs are under control. uh, We have a high yield. But we're also very proud of our ESG credentials. Uh, They're all on our website. We have uh, four years of very uh, understandable, uh, which is also important, uh, KPIs in terms of ESG. Uh, All of our uh, power uh, that we use at MVC is uh, renewable power. We have very little diesel consumption. Uh, Quite importantly, in Chile, we have uh, a a very efficient water uh, utilization. We have very low water withdrawal. Um, We have no community disputes. um, Good diversity, specifically within our corporate group. Um, Women CFO, women CEO, uh, diverse board. Most of our management team is Hispanic, so... Uh, I think that those are important, real, um, relatable uh, ESE credentials. So I just wanted to mention those as well.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. That was Aurora Davidson, the CEO of Amerigo Resources. If you haven't, go look up their story, go look up their stock. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank
1: you, guys. It's always great to be here.